the caregiver is the person providing the dignity and the support for the person with Alzheimer's. And the caregiver or care partner has to have support and guidance when they have to say, no, you're not going to be able to do this because they're going to be the person dealing with either the anger and the rage But they're also going to be the person, you know, if somebody continues to drive and they have an accident, dealing with the guilt of why did I let this person continue to drive? Welcome to Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's, a patient-centered nonprofit organization. Your host, Meryl Comer, is a co-founder, 24-year caregiver, an Emmy Award-winning journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Slow Dancing with a Stranger. This is Brainstorm, and I'm Meryl Comer with our continuing series on breaking through the silence and stigma of Alzheimer's disease. Our guest is Lee Callahan, a respected epidemiologist and outcomes researcher who focuses on robotic disease. Her husband, Dr. John Winfield, had a distinguished career as a researcher and rheumatologist until Alzheimer's changed their lives forever. Welcome, Lee. It's great to have you. Thank you, Meryl. It's a delight to be with you. For those who didn't know John, describe him at the top of his professional career. First and foremost, he always viewed himself as a clinician and a physician. And he really cared a lot for his patients with arthritis and rheumatic diseases. He was also a bench researcher for many years and then switched some of his focus to think about patients with fibromyalgia and chronic pain. He founded the Thurston Arthritis Research Center at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill and led that and also led the program, the Fellows Training Program for many years, as well as he was the chief of the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology. He retired from the University of North Carolina and then became, in his words, a country doc. And he had a private practice in Boone, North Carolina, and really enjoyed that practicing full-time until it really became too difficult with his Alzheimer's disease. Lee, what were John's hobbies and what personal memories do you have of fun times together? In terms of his hobbies, he was an avid scuba diver, actually did cave diving, and was proud to say he had a faculty appointment in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science, taught the undergrad students scuba diving for many years. He liked to ride off-road motorcycles, and he and I enjoyed snow skiing. He taught me to scuba dive, so we enjoyed scuba diving, snow skiing, playing golf. We were both golfers, and bicycling. We bicycled a lot through Europe and had a great ride for a number of years before he was diagnosed. Lee, what were the symptoms that initially sounded the alarm for you? And was John self-aware that something was wrong? I think about this a lot, Meryl, because I now see that things that almost were hurtful to me early on, which were more agitation or irritation and frustration, started earliest. It was not the memory or not forgetting things, but he could not do certain activities 
for instance, hanging a picture. I can remember it taking him hours to measure and try to hang this picture. And I'm saying, look, just measure from here. This is the way it will go. And he was furious with me. And now I realize those were signs of his Alzheimer's disease, but they weren't the typical things that people think about. And I didn't pick up on it for a while. Lee, my husband, like your husband, was misdiagnosed four times over five years, but my husband remained in denial. What was your experience, and was John accepting of the diagnosis? No, not initially. He knew something was going wrong. He knew he was having difficulty remembering information about his patients. And he actually commented on one of the forms we participated in that he had a patient look at her husband and say, he doesn't know who I am. That was really what precipitated him stopping work. And we went to a neurologist at that point, and the neurologist diagnosed mild cognitive impairment. A few months later, we went back, and the neurologist he tested as if these things were that accurate. I mean, as a researcher, I know there's a margin of error, but he was now testing in what would be classified as Alzheimer's disease. And John was furious. We never went back to that physician again. And he thought the physician was wrong and that maybe the physician had talked to me behind my back and did I know this? So we went somewhere else in multiple places. And then it took a little while, but then a switch flipped. And he was willing to accept it. And I was quite happy that he was willing to talk about it. And I think things became a lot easier for him and for me once he accepted it. You know, our first instincts as spouses are to run interference and try to keep things as normal as possible. What were your strategies? One of my strategies was keeping contact and interactions with our friends. We're very fortunate to have a wonderful group of friends that we had traveled with. We continued traveling with them. We continued going to activities that we enjoyed, basketball games, football games, going to concerts. More and more music became the type of cultural activity we would do together. It became harder to go to plays. And even harder to go to movies and have him follow the plot line and not, you know, question me the whole time during it. But music, opera, that was always a strategy and something we could do that was fun and he enjoyed. Did you find this one of the more challenging stages of the disease when you wanted to respect John's autonomy and yet you're trying to protect him at the same time? Yes, I found it very challenging and challenging to figure out the line that I would go to. Very good example is I needed to be at a meeting for the American College of Rheumatology in San Francisco, and John did not want to come fly out there with me. And I felt like we should fly together, but he wanted to stay and go to a football game and come the day later. So I said, okay, and tried to kind of help organize things about the flight. I got up in the middle of the night to call him, to wake him up, to catch his flight. Well, he missed the flight and actually walked out on the tarmac at the airport and got arrested and a $11,000 fine. And I kept thinking, why did I let him say it was okay to go by himself? But 
it was that balance of not wanting to, in his words, baby him, but also not wanting a disaster to happen. Thank you, Lee. These are very important anecdotes to share because I think it gives people insight into some of the issues that that are going on. Why do you think it's important to look at the needs and priorities of both the patient and the caregivers? I think it's important to look at the needs of both of the individuals because the caregiver is the person who's providing the dignity and the support for the person with Alzheimer's. And the caregiver or care partner has to have support and guidance when they have to say, no, you're not going to be able to do this because they're going to be the person dealing with either the anger and the rage of, why are you stopping me? You know, what gives you the authority or you don't know? But they're also going to be the person, you know, if somebody continues to drive and they have an accident dealing with the guilt of why did I let this person continue to drive? You're bringing up some, so many important points. We have both managed uh, issues of agitation in Alzheimer's. Can you share what set John off? Uh, he was more agitated earlier in the disease, and I think it was frustration. And he was frustrated, anger at himself for not being able to do things the way he used to do them. And then that triggered frustration and anger toward me. As the disease progressed and he accepted what was going on and he would say, well, you know, I have Alzheimer's and we had caregivers he enjoyed. He wasn't as agitated. He did get agitated. I do remember coming home from work one day and he had had a fall and he needed to be walking with the walker. And the caregiver and John were like face to face in a standoff. She was like, nope, you're not going anywhere without this walker. And he was like, you're not telling me what to do. But it wasn't a rage. It was more of trying to hold on to control. Leah, as the disease progressed, how did the behavioral symptoms of agitation present themselves? And did the agitation ever elevate to a level where you feared for your safety? Only once. And I'm still not sure what triggered that. But one time it was like he just lost it. And I was fearful because he was pulling over some furniture and doing things like that. At the very, very end, at the end stage, he was having hallucinations, and I wasn't fearful then. I was more just profoundly sad. Um, he was frightened at that point, at the, toward the last week or two. Can you offer other caregivers any strategies on how you dealt with these episodes? With the hallucinations, I, I tried not to totally disregard what he was saying. I was, you know, I said, I, I understand you're seeing something. I'm not seeing that, but you, you know, I tried to value that and not just argue away. By that point, though, I had to hospitalize him. He was hospitalized. And that was, that was extremely tough because hospitals make everything worse. I, at the time that they started, thought that he must be having a urinary tract infection. I mean, because it happened pretty quickly. And so we were in the emergency room and trying to figure things out. And then 
they had to restrain him. And he was very upset and frightened and unhappy with me. And he would call me over and say, if you just got to bring me a knife, you've got to get a knife in here. And I would say, well, honey, you know, the hospital won't allow that. They would stop me. I, you know, I would try to help you if I could. I tried to, you know, not say like, this is ridiculous. I can't bring you a knife, but I would just try to couch it in a way that I'm not going to be allowed to do this because the hospital has rules. I use the similar technique in playing into the hallucination, not challenging it, and I would try to solve the issue to the point of capturing things in pillowcases. Do anything to resolve it and put it outside and slam the door and say, we're clear. I think back now, I haven't thought about some of these things for a little bit and thinking about how I was in the emergency room when he was saying, don't you see that bear climbing over the edge of the ship behind you? And I I would say, I'd look and I'd say, oh, it must have gone down. I'm not seeing the bear. Lee, we both testified at an FDA public hearing considering a new and first treatment for agitation in Alzheimer's disease. Why is it important to speak out at these public hearings? And how much, if at all, do you think we influence the outcome? That's a double-barreled question. I will go first with why is it important. I think it is important for us to get the story out there about what really happens to the dyads of Alzheimer's disease, whether or not you are a spouse, a child caring for a parent, or a good friend, sibling, whatever. There is a lot that goes into the relationship of who becomes a primary care partner and what they see and deal with and protect and do to provide dignity for their loved one. And many times that story is not there and say the agitation. Someone on the outside who has not lived it, not breathed it, has not experienced it, may have no idea the fear it can strike in the person who is dealing with it and the hopelessness that someone may have about how do I deal with this? What do I do? And the profound sadness that someone has, that you love someone and you're looking at someone who obviously is in a lot of pain. And I think making that abstract vision that someone who's not been part of it, a reality is important and we should all do that. Now, Lee, let's go back to that second part of the question, which is, how much, if at all, and you're a scientist yourself, do you think we influence the outcome? Very little, sadly. I find it interesting that there's still, rightfully so, a focus on what is the patient think or the person with the disease, the person with the disease feel. And this disease doesn't happen in a vacuum. And I don't feel like that the voice of the care partner has been valued as much in the past. In our next episode of Brainstorm, researcher and caregiver Lee Callahan shares why she and her husband, John, chose to be patient advocates, what she wished doctors had told her, and how the Alzheimer's journey changed her. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. 
Our team is on a mission to help you stay up with the latest scientific breakthroughs, from new therapies to technologies on early diagnosis and personal brain health advice from well-known experts using an equity lens that promotes brain health for all. Now, we'd like to hear what's on your mind. What are the topics and guests you'd like to hear featured on Brainstorm? Send your comments to brainstorm at usagainstalzheimers.org. That's it for this edition. I'm Errol Comer. Thank you for brainstorming with us. Support for Brainstorm by Us Against Alzheimer's comes from Otsuka and Lundbeck. Subscribe to Brainstorm on your favorite podcast platform and join us on the first and third Tuesday of every month.